Esther chapter 2. As today we continue this uh, amazing book on God moving in the world and the nation of Israel. And, uh, you know, I don't know where you guys are in your walk. I know that, uh, you know, when we look at the book of Esther, you know, our immediate inclination might be, well, I want to be an Esther. You know, I want to be someone that God uses in a significant way, you know, to man save the world. And you know what? That's a noble thought. I, I pray that you would have that in your heart, you know, that God can use our life. You know, you might be like Esther. She had a very insignificant, uh, I don't know, I guess you could say social standing. She was uh, poor. She was a foreigner. Uh, she was uh, an orphan. And uh, uh, we're going to even see later that she wasn't really like all that right on. And yet God used her in a great way. And so there is that element in the book, you know, but but even more than, hey, me looking at this book and kind of focusing on myself and how I can be used by God, it might be better just to see God. Just to see how awesome God is in that he is on the throne regarding everything in our life. Everything, when you were born, where you were born. I mean, even the, the looks that we have in one sense are, you know, things that he uses in our life. I mean, just you're going to see the calamities, the tragedies, the victories. I mean, everything in our life, God will use for his glory. And he will, in his providence, he will protect us from the enemy. Because we're going to see later, as we go through the book, this uh, guy named Haman, he's, uh, he's an Amalekite. He's kind of like a picture of the enemy, and he wants to destroy the Jews, just like the enemy wants to destroy your life. You know, and, and for us, it's important to know that in God's providence, he has the power to perfectly protect us. And at the end of the day, I think to me, that's probably more important than focusing on myself because, yeah, I do want to be used by God. To be honest with you, I do. But I know that if I focus on myself, it's not going to happen. If I focus on him and who he is, you know what? There's hope. There's hope. And so we go now in chapter 2, and what we find is God is preparing his heroes. I like what A.B. Simpson said. He said, God is preparing his heroes, and when the opportunity comes, he can fit them into their places in a moment, and the world will wonder where they came from. You know, such is the story of Esther. Without her even being aware of it or even Apart from any righteousness of her own, we're going to see as the story unfolds, she was being prepared to save the nation of Israel. And in the process, she becomes an illustration of God's providence, which in its ultimate practicality for us as God's children, that is described as the perfect protection and care for God's people. And so last week, we went over chapter one. We saw there was the big party going on. Uh, King Xerxes was throwing a feast for all the provinces, and uh, he was kind of like, you know, gathering the troops so that he can invade Greece. We see that throughout history, right? And so in the process, as he's throwing the feast, he says, hey, you know, uh, sweetheart, he calls his wife, uh, Queen Vashti, to come and just kind of like let all the guys, imagine that. It would be like 
going to like some bachelor party before you're a Christian, you go to a bachelor party and the girl comes in, right? That's kind of what he's saying for his wife to do. So praise God, even the pagan queen Vashti knew better than that. She said no, but as a result of that, the counselors to the king, they said then, you know what, you should divorce her, get rid of her. And so he did, and they wanted to kind of make this a public message for all the people to see that, you know, a husband's the boss, right? And so uh, that's where we pick it up in in chapter 2. Now we see in verse 1, it says, And after these things, when the wrath of King Ahasuerus subsided, he remembered Vashti, that was his former wife, what she had done and what had been decreed against her. And then the king's servants who attended him said, let beautiful young virgins be sought for the king and let the king appoint officers in all the provinces of his kingdom that they may gather all the beautiful young virgins to Shushan the citadel into the women's quarters under the custody of Haggai the king's eunuch, custodian of the women and let beauty preparations be given them. And then let the young woman who pleases the king be queen instead of Vashti, and this thing pleased the king, and he did so. First thing we see that happens is the king remembers Vashti. He, he remembers his former wife. Uh, history tells us that this king did indeed invade Greece, and this is now four years later. He returns with his tail between his legs because he got defeated by Alexander, Right? And so, you know, as he gets home, you know, having been defeated, I don't know, maybe he just starts thinking a little bit more deeply and he gets a little lonely, having lost his wife, Vashti. Maybe he thought to himself, you know what, I made the wrong decision. She was a good woman. And, you know, there are some husbands that do that, man. They go out and they split and they find some younger chick and they leave their wife, they leave their family. Next thing you know, they found out they made the worst decision of their life. You know, maybe there was something uh, of that going on, right? Maybe he realized that he acted hastily in removing her. You know what they say, the grass is always the greener on the other side, right? And so anyways, uh, now this happens. He's getting a little lonely. Warren Worsby said Near, nearly four years have passed since Vashti was removed. During that time, uh, Ahasuerus, also known as Xerxes, directed his ill-fated Greek campaign and came home in humiliation instead of honor. As he considered his rash actions towards his wife, his affection for Vashti rekindled. And although he had a harem full of concubines, he missed his queen. Warren Wiersbe said, there's a difference between love and sex. The passing excitement of the moment is not the same as the lasting enrichment of a lifetime relationship. You know, and so the king's beginning to realize this. Hey, I got all these, you know, concubines. I got harems. But man, my wife, the one who really loved me, is gone. And so it starts at home, and he starts to get a a little lonely. And, you know, the counselors, they kind of hear him with that. And they don't want Vashti to become queen again, because then they would probably you know, be dead because they were the ones that told her to divorce him, right? And so they, they give him this counsel right here to replace Vashti, right? And this is the plan. They come up with the plan to replace her. 
You know, we'll go looking for beautiful young virgins, unmarried women. We'll gather them together into the women's quarters under the custody of this guy, Haggai, the king's eunuch, and we'll give them beauty treatments, classes, preparations for, think about it, ladies, an entire year. Man, that's all you're doing is you're, you know, learning how to be etiquette. You're getting all the oils. I was looking online and at how expensive it can be, you know, to get all the beauty treatments. And they have a lot of them now. It's, it's kind of sad, huh? I see some gals um, going through all that process. Anyways, the, a whole year. And then it's, just, it's crazy, though. It says, essentially what it says, and then, king, you can sample all of them sexually, spend the night with them, look them over from head to toe, and then the one you like best will replace Vashti. And it's crazy. You're like, man, this is a weird book, you know, the, the things that, you know, these guys think of. How can God possibly use this for his glory? You know, there's a, a movie out there. It's called The Arabian Nights. I've never seen it. I don't really know a whole lot about it. But I do know that in the movie, the emperor, Shariar, he married a new wife every day. Every day. In the evening, he would sleep with her. But then he had her killed the next morning so that he could make sure that she wasn't unfaithful to him. You know, that, that's a type of mentality in one sense that this king came up with, you know? Find out which one I like the best and the ones that uh, are not selected, they live the rest of their life without a husband and kind of like isolation. And the plan of King Xerxes is similar. Again, as Warren Wiersbe points out, every night the king had a new partner and the next morning she joined the rest of the concubines. The one who pleased the king would then be the queen. And so the plan was approved by the king, as it would, no doubt, by any uh, man who was not saved and king. Sounds good to me. Yeah, that's wise. And, uh, and what we find, you guys, in all this, what's God doing? God's going to protect his nation, Israel. God will protect his people. They're doing what they want to do, but they're not in control. God's in control. You know, what are they doing? They're legislating laws. Oh, we don't like the laws that they're legislating today. That's okay, though. He's the Lord of the laws. I don't like that dictator. I don't like his decrees. It's okay, because God has determined to use even all those crazy things. We're going to see one day. And, you know, I have a feeling more than likely what's going to happen is one day when we're in heaven, I don't know for sure, you guys, but I have a strange feeling that we're going to be able to go up to God and he's going to say, well, that's why that happened. And that's why that happened. And that's why you were born in Almani in 1966. And that's why, you know, you had gray hair when you were young. I mean, he'll tell us all the details of everything that happened. And it's going to be so amazing. We're going to see how God is in control of everything. And when, when I find that truth, I tell you what, it comforts me and it encourages me to know that I don't need to be bummed out or frustrated or depressed or all that crazy things the enemy wants to take me down. I can just say, praise God, because I know even that thing right there, which I despise, I don't like, I struggle with, or that person or that situation, it's okay. It's all part of God's perfect plan. 
And so we see these things happen. And then we read next in verse 5, it says, In Shushan, the citadel, there was a certain Jew whose name was Mordecai, the son of Jair, the son of Shimei, the son of Kish, a Benjamite. Kish had been carried away from Jerusalem with the captives who had been captured with Jeconiah, king of Judah, whom Nebuchadnezzar, the king of Babylon, had carried away. And Mordecai had brought up Hadassah, that is Esther, his uncle's daughter, for she had neither father nor mother. The young woman was lovely and beautiful. When her father and mother died, Mordecai took her, notice, as his own daughter. And so what God is, he's going to tell the story. He's saying, you need a little bit know about what's going on with the king. And I, and I want you to know a little bit know about, I want you to know a little bit about Esther's background as well. You know, Mordecai and Esther right here are, are we find out that they're of the tribe of Benjamin. Not only that, they are descendants of King Saul, because Kish was Saul's dad. And so, you know, in reading that, you might think, well, there's no big deal, but it, there's probably significance to it in a redeeming sense. Because if you have studied your Bible, you remember way back in the day, uh, King Saul was commanded to wipe out the Amalekites. He didn't obey, and the Amalekites survived, producing a man we'll be introduced to in the next chapter named Haman. He's an Amalekite. And this Amalekite wants to wipe out Israel, right? He wants to wipe them out, right? And yet, here we see Esther is part of the tribe of Benjamin. Uh, uh, her and Mordecai are descendants of King Saul. And, and what we find is that there's irony to it that a descendant of King Saul will wipe him out. We're going to see later in the end, Esther wins. And so the devil, he throws this at you and he thinks he's got you. Oh, this will get them down. This will take them out. This will defeat them. This will, you know, mess up their life. And, and it's just so cool to know that, you know, as long as you're not like, you know, kicking against the goads with everything you are, you know, you might even be like Jonah. I mean, look at how gracious God was and that he, he, you know, prepared the fish you know, and took Jonah in the right direction. I tell you what, that's how good God is. That's how good God is. You know, I know the devil comes against us. I know the world we live in. I know the bodies we live in. I know there's so many forms of opposition. But here we see the Lord just lining everything up and doing it in such a brilliant way that we see it's his hand all along. You know, they're from the tribe of Benjamin, more than likely descendants of King Saul. And it says right here, they were carried away from Jerusalem. This particular time of carrying away would be probably right around 599 to 597 BC. You can read about it in 2 Kings chapter 4, I mean 24. But as they're there, uh, we don't know when or how, but somehow Esther's parents die. She, she becomes an orphan. And again, you know, you're like, man, that's a, that's a big blow. You know, how does a, a little kid, how do they survive without their mom and dad? You know, and then we begin to look around and we look in the church and then we see, oh, he didn't have a dad. He, he never knew his dad. Or his dad was never there for him or or mom, or both, or, you know, just different things like that, you know? And a lot of times we think, well, then they're, they're not going to make it. And yet, 
You know, here's this little girl, her parents both die. She becomes an orphan. And then what ends up happening is Mordecai, her older cousin, then takes up the responsibility of raising Esther. And that's so cool. I love what it says right there. And the Bible says in verse 7 that Mordecai took her as his own daughter. As his own daughter. You know, and we'll see they definitely bonded over time, you know. And so the years go by. Esther grows up to be a young lady. And here we see she's described as, notice again there in verse 7, the young woman was lovely and beautiful. And in the Hebrew language, more than likely, it is describes not just that she's pretty, but that she has a nice figure. Um, other translations say that. For example, the NIV says that Mordecai had a cousin named Hadassah, whom he had brought up because she had neither father nor mother. The young woman, who was also known as Esther, had a lovely figure and was beautiful. And so, you know, every once in a while, the Bible will say stuff like that, you know? Like, for example, in Joseph, in describing Joseph, who has a similar story, it says he was handsome and buff. Did you guys know that? That's what the Bible says, okay? Just to let you know, okay? And so everything's lining up. That's what God's doing. In verse 8, it says, So it was when the king's command and decree were heard, and when many young women were gathered at Shushan, the citadel, under the custody of Haggai, that Esther also was taken to the king's palace, into the care of Haggai, the custodian of the women. Now, the young woman pleased him, and she obtained his favor, so he readily gave beauty preparations to her besides her allowance. And then seven choice maidservants were provided for her from the king's palace. And he moved her and her maidservants to the best place in the house of the women. Esther had not revealed her people or family, for Mordecai had charged her not to reveal it. And every day, Mordecai paced in front of the court. Can you kind of picture him there, kind of going back and forth, right? Trying to find out what's going on, right? Of the women's quarters to learn of Esther's welfare and what was happening to her. Each young woman's turn came to go into King Hasserus after she had completed 12 months preparation according to regulations for the women. For thus were the days of their preparation apportioned, six months with oil of myrrh, six months with perfumes and preparations for beautifying women. Thus prepared, each young woman went to the king, and she was given whatever she desired to take with her from the women's quarters to the king's palace. In the evening she went, and in the morning she returned to the second house of the women, to the custody of Shagaz, the king's eunuch, who kept the concubines. She would not go into the king again unless the king delighted in her and called her by name. Now when the turn came for Esther, the daughter of Abihel, the uncle of Mordecai, who had taken her as his daughter to go into the king, she requested nothing but what Haggai, the king's eunuch, the custodian of the women, advised. And Esther obtained favor in the sight of all who saw her. So Esther was taken to the king Ahasuerus into his royal palace in the tenth month, which is the seventh, which is the month of Tebeth in the seventh year of his reign. The king loved Esther more than all the other women, and she obtained grace and favor in his sight more than all the virgins. And so he set the royal crown 
upon her head and made her queen instead of Vashti. Then the king made a great feast, the feast of Esther, for all his officials and servants, and he proclaimed a holiday in the provinces and gave gifts according to the generosity of a king. And so how did it happen? How did this little orphan girl, Jewish, become queen of the land? You know, we, we read right here that all the young women were then selected, right? And so they go throughout the provinces. Um, we don't know for sure. Like some say, was it a beauty show where people volunteered? Some look at it that way. Others say, no, it was forced upon them. Maybe it was a combination of both. Bottom line is, we don't have the details in the scriptures. But we do know that Esther is among these young ladies. And, and when she arrives, uh, we read here in verse 9 um, that this guy Haggai was impressed with her, the king's eunuch. He was the custodian of the woman. He was in one sense the one in charge. And with that one, she found favor in his sight. Now you look at that and you might wonder, well, maybe, and I thought about it too, I'm thinking, well, she was very pretty, she had a nice figure, more than likely she was very charming, but you want to know something? When you, when you really, really read the Bible carefully, it's God who gives favor. You know, something, um, the Lord touched his heart to see her in a special and significant way. You know, somehow she found favor in his sight. And that's what happens. That's what happens in the church, you know. That's what happens at, you know, at work sometimes. I mean, that's what happens sometimes in life. You know, when God wants to put people in different places, you know, they find favor, right? And so when she found favor with him, uh, he then gave her generous beauty treatments. There in verse 9, where it says, besides her allowance, in the Hebrew language, it's more, more than likely in reference to special food. The NIV, the NLT, they both say that. She was given special food. She was given a special menu, which I kind of like because I love to eat. And I was thinking, wow, that's kind of cool. You know, all the beauty treatments and the special diet. Uh, it also says in verse 7 that she was given the choice or the best ladies to help her through all of this. And then it even tells us in verse 7 that she was to be housed in the best place in the house. She had the best quarters of all the women. And so God was giving her favor, huh? God was just blessing her. And if you think about the favor she was given and the difference she would make among the nations, you know, I, I don't know, I think about people like Joseph. I think about people like Daniel in the biblical accounts, right? You know, one commentator said this, just as Joseph found favor in Egypt and Daniel in Babylon, so Esther found favor in Shushan. God is so great that he can work even in the heart and mind of the keeper of a harem. Haggai was a Gentile. His job was to provide pleasure for the king, and he didn't know the true God of Israel. Nevertheless, he played an important role in the plan that God was working out for his people. Even today, God is working in places where you and I might think he's absent. You know, when something crazy happens to you, and you just I encourage you to know that 
It's, it's part of God's plan, and without that crazy thing happening to you, then we might not arrive where he wants us to go. You see? And so here we see that, you know, there's similarities. I don't know about you, but it encourages me as I live in this world among non-believers, at home, at work, in government, and, and even in the church. It's, it's a blessing. It's comforting to know that, that God is in control, not the president, not the pastor. You know, it's not them. It's not any other person. And, and God will not fail to accomplish his purpose. You guys know that? You know, we look out and, you know, we see the, 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 the governors, the rulers in the world, you know, and the, our past president, and man, we're like, Lord, how did that happen? And, you know, and then we got our new president coming up, and I, I don't know about you, I, I, I see hope. I see hope for Israel, which to me is very important for us, for us you know, as a nation. Because Genesis 12, 3, it talks about how God will bless those who bless Israel. He'll curse those who curse Israel. I mean, there's a, a lot of things to think about. But when you look at you know, all the rulers and all the governments and all the people and positions of power, it's just so cool to know they don't rule, God rules. God overrules and God is going to use all this for his glory. We see that we saw that in, in the life of Daniel. I encourage you to read that if you haven't already. In the life of Joseph, how God it says in Genesis 50, verse 20, he, he said, Joseph said, You meant it for evil, God, God meant it for good. Right? To bring about the salvation of all these people. Man, there's nothing the devil can can do to us. That as long as we stay focused on the Lord, man, it's so cool to see how God can work it out, right? So there's similarities to Joseph and, and Daniel, but there's also great differences as well. You know, and, and here's where it gets pretty interesting. Um, I mentioned to you last week that God is not, he's not in the book. He's not mentioned in the book. And in one sense, when you look at Esther and Mordecai, not only is God like not mentioned, it almost seems like he's not intentioned. I mean, and here's where it gets pretty interesting. Mordecai and Esther, where were they really in their walks with the Lord? You know, when you look at these guys right here, um, Mordecai is his name, his Babylonian name. It's named after a Babylonian god. Esther, is her, that name is actually Persian. And, and one wonders why she wanted to be in this position, if she did. We're not 100% sure on the details of all that, but it seems like she did. I mean, it, you know, I mean, hooking up with a pagan king, you know, having her identity, nationality as a Jew, it would be a matter of faith and family. And to hide that, you know, it's not just blood, it's belief, but I'm not going to tell anybody I'm a Jew. It almost be like, you know, you say you're a Christian, but I'm not going to tell anybody you're a Christian. You know, looking at that, you know, it, it really does make us scratch our head. You know, allow me to read to you a few Christian commentators regarding this issue, um, because we need to know that what was being done in and of itself was, was wrong. Uh, for example, H.A. Ironside, he said, there can be no question that her position was entirely opposed to the word of God. 
Providence might seem to favor her, but faith would assuredly have led her at once to declare herself as a, as a Jew, one of the afflicted people of Jehovah. This she does not do. Mordecai, having expressly urged her to carefully conceal it, Mordecai had not fully entered into God's mind in regard to the complete separation of his people from the nations. The law expressly forbade the giving of the daughters of Israel in marriage to the Gentiles. Uh, Bible Knowledge Commentary says, By law, Esther was not to marry a pagan, Deuteronomy 7, 1-4, or have sexual relations with a man who was not her husband, Exodus 20, verse 14. And yet this was the purpose of her being included in the harem. Esther could be contrasted with Daniel, who refused to eat the things from the king's table, according to Daniel 1, verse 5, because the food would include items considered unclean by the Jewish law. Apparently, Esther had no problem about the food that she ate. She certainly did not set herself apart as Daniel did. And then Warren Wiersbe said this, what about the, the non-kosher lifestyle? Even though the law of Moses was temporary and it would be ended with the death of Christ on the cross, the law was still in effect and the Jews were expected to obey it. Daniel and his friends were careful to obey the law while they lived in Babylon, and he overlooked the unfaithfulness of Mordecai and Esther and still used them to accomplish his purposes. But even more serious than their lifestyle is the problem of a Jewish in a harem, a Jewess in a harem, and ultimately marrying a Gentile. The law of Moses prohibited all kinds of illicit sex as well as mixed marriages. And so, you know, we have to face that issue. Like, what about that? You know, what's up with that? You know, Mordecai and Esther were violating the word of God, and yet he still used what was going on. And how does it all work? And 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 what I what we want to come away with, what we want to make me make sure we understand, is grace. Grace. And a lot of people they they don't have an understanding of grace. You know. They're violating the word of God, but God in his amazing grace decided to use them for his purposes. So we're going to come away with a more wonderful picture of God and maybe a lesser picture of Esther and Mordecai. Now, eventually they're going to come around. And eventually they're going to rise to nobility. But if there's anyone here who's ever blown it, if there's anyone here who's ever fallen and maybe some of these sins that, you know, we're going to see Esther kind of goes into, in one sense, with eyes wide open, you know, signing up for it, and yet used by God. If there's anyone here who has struggled and, you know, you've blown it and the enemy comes in and says, you know what, it's done, God can't use you, maybe in a small way, then you, you learn from this book, oh, no, God not done with you. God can use you in a great way because it's not about how good esther was or mordecai was or billy graham was or chuck smith was it's about how good and awesome god is now i'm not saying you go into sin with eyes wide open don't do that you know romans 5 20 it says where sin abounded grace abounded much more you know, and so you're like, yeah, grace is cool. I'm just going to go ahead and sin. And then Paul says, no. In Romans chapter 6, 1 and 2, what shall we say then? Shall we continue in sin that grace may abound? Certainly not. Literally in the Greek language, it says, take that thought out of your mind and kill it. 
Don't ever have the mentality that says, well, you know, well, where sin abounds, grace abounds much more, so I'll just go ahead and sin. No way. That thought dies. How shall we who, the Bible says, died to sin live any longer in it? You know, God will take things. God will take sometimes ministries. God will take maybe a female pastor you know, and you're like, wow, she's such a great communicator, and someone gets saved through that ministry, and so, you know, doesn't that validate that? Uh, or, you know, Ironside was given an example of a, a Roman Catholic priest who was living in sin, who one day gave a sermon, someone got saved, and so you might look at that and think, well, then the Roman Catholic Church is okay, and so is that, you know, it's okay for you to live in sin while you're preaching. no. No, that's not what happens. You know, one day, you know, the Bible's our final authority. They're not supposed to be women pastors. The Bible's very clear on that, right? And we know the Roman Catholic Church, although some of them are saved, their, their, their theology is heresy, right? And I've heard stories, some Calvary Chapel pastors, I won't tell you their names, but they got saved under some weird ministries, man, because it's not the person, it's the Lord, right? So we don't look at things by experience and say, well, it's okay to do that then because it worked for them. I knew two uh, pastors, actually, and it's an interesting story. One of them was a Christian, and he went into a relationship. She wasn't, but he said to himself, and this is the way he reasoned, eventually she'll get saved. Another one, you guys probably know the story. This one's more uh, popular, Pastor Raw. And Sharon, you know, she was backslidden at the time. She married a non-believer, you know, and so went through so much heartache. But look at what God did. So again, not saying it's okay to do that because, you know, those stories are far and few between. But all I'm trying to say is that if you find yourself in a situation where, you know, you feel like, you know what, I think I've blown it and the enemy's coming in and he's trying to condemn you. You know what? There's hope. There is hope for us. And I think that in looking at Esther and Mordecai, and again, you know, they probably should have gone back to Jerusalem because in all reality, probably only a total of about 54,000 went back to Jerusalem and they should have gone back, but they didn't. And here they are, you know, engaged in this whole thing and you know, you're, you're thinking, well, maybe they're not, you know, that strong after all. And you find out, well, that's really the truth and that's the way it is. And, and, and yet, you know, not saying that's okay, but what it is, and I just pray we would understand, is it's intended to illustrate, it really is intended to illustrate the goodness of God, not Esther or Mordecai. It's God. Look at how gracious he is. I love this quote by Warren Wiersbe, okay? So if you're a sinner, listen. Okay, the rest of you don't have to listen, but if you've blown it, I want you to listen to this. This Warren Wiersbe said, no failure is permanent in the school of faith. Remember, the victorious Christian life is a series of new beginnings. That is not an excuse for sin, but it is an encouragement for repentance. And I pray we would know that. You know, even though it gets, it gets pretty bad, this whole thing right here. And so we read next in, in verse 19. It says, when, when virgins were gathered together a second time, Mordecai sat within the king's gate. 
Now Esther had not revealed her family and her people just as Mordecai had charged her. For Esther obeyed the command of Mordecai as when she was brought up by him. And so now she becomes queen. Um, more than likely, Mordecai now has a kind of a, a place in the gates there. It says in verse 19, Mordecai sat within the king's gate, so that would be kind of like the courthouse. He kind of has a place which it, it kind of reminds me, to be honest with you, of Lot, who sat in the gates of Sodom and Gomorrah, to be honest with you. Virgins are gathered together a second time, so here comes the king doing this again. Interesting. And Esther has not revealed the fact that she is a Jew, right? And so what ends up happening in verse 21, in those days while Mordecai sat within the king's gate, two of the king's eunuchs, Bigthan and Teresh, doorkeepers, became furious and sought to lay hands on King Ahasuerus. In other words, they're coming up with an assassination plot. And so the matter became known to Mordecai, who told Queen Esther, and Esther informed the king in Mordecai's name, and when an inquiry was made into the matter, it was confirmed, and both were hanged on a gallows, and it was written in the book of the Chronicles in the presence of the king. And so what ends up happening? Um, although, you know, we look at this and we're like, man, how could God use their life? All these things are going to be used by him, we're going to see as we continue to study you know, God, one thing that I will say about this, and I, I want to encourage you guys in, Esther and Mordecai, they loved Israel. And there's something about that. There's something about that, right? And so one day, uh, Mordecai is there at the gate, and he hears these guys talking about how they're going to take down the king, Right? And so what does he do? He tells Esther, she tells the king, they look into the whole matter and they find out, sure enough, that it was true. And so what ends up happening? They take those guys and, uh, and they hang them on the gallows. Mordecai did what was right, right? He did a good work and reported the planned attack on the king. But it's interesting to see that um, he didn't get rewarded, you know, nowadays, rewards are big, right? And it was back then as well. You know, they would more than likely somehow honor him, but for some reason, they didn't do it then. They didn't notice Mordecai. You would expect him to be noticed, but he wasn't, at least not yet. Something interesting, just in case you're thinking, well, there's no way the king could have been killed. 14 years later, he was. He was assassinated 14 years later, so... Mordecai really did save the king's life, but he wasn't rewarded yet. He did what was right. He did a good work. He reported the planned attack on the king, but for whatever reason, he wasn't rewarded. We're going to see, though, that eventually he will. As we continue to study this book, we'll see it, it just wasn't the right time. And you guys never forget that. You know, a lot of times we're thinking, well, God, you know, I need to be rewarded now, or God, I want this now, or, you know, God, I need this now. Don't you hate how long the microwave takes? 
It's like, man, I've been there for 20 seconds, and you're all walking back and forth and stuff. You know, when you go into the drive-thru right here, how long are you in the McDonald's drive-thru? Today, I went to McDonald's, right, to get me a cup of coffee, and I was in the flash, man. I'm like, man, why is it taking so long, you know? And next thing you know, it's three minutes, and you're upset. You know, and that's how we are in life, you know? But here's the thing. I'll tell you what. Um, I, I, it's almost as if the longer you have to wait, the better it'll be. It's almost like that, you guys. Don't get impatient. Stay focused on the Lord. Draw near to him. Be close in relationship with him because it's from that relationship that everything springs. You know, you know I don't know. I mean, I remember Pastor Raw talking about when they first started the church, five years, 25 people. Think about that. Five years, 25 people. And this is when Calvary first began. You know, when Costa Mesa began, I mean, that was a huge church. It was the movement of the Holy Spirit. It was the Jesus movement, you know? And so you would figure that it would grow right away, you know? But man, I mean, it took time. But you know what? He was faithful. Now look at what God has done, you know? And again, it's not always about numbers, you know? But I'll tell you what, the, the main thing is faithfulness, but, but as, you, as you're patient, as you're waiting on the Lord, then in his perfect timing, you will see great things happen. Eventually, Mordecai is going to be rewarded. As we continue to study the book, it's interesting how everything happens. Um, one night, the king is having a hard time sleeping. And he, so what he does is he has one of his guys read the Chronicles of the Kingdom. You know, and so he probably has a hard time sleeping, and he's like, well, I know one way I'll fall asleep. They'll just read me history, right? That's probably what he's thinking. And so uh, they're reading, and he reads about, he happens to come across the scroll that mentions the good work of Mordecai. And, and the king asks, hey, did we ever reward this guy? I mean, this is four years later. No, we never did anything for him. And so then the king rewards him in an absolute I mean, it's this impeccable timing because right there, if when you read the story, um, Haman was just about to go in to ask that they would hang Mordecai. And boom, right there, God just, man, he stepped in, right? And so, and you know, so many things that we can talk about and how God is sovereign over even sleepless nights and delayed rewards and you know, the way we look and where we were born and when we were born and you name it, all the different things. My, my parents died, my brother, my sister, things that happened, right? All part of God's perfect plan. And so what do we do? You know, we just keep, uh, one thing I think about Mordecai, he did the good work and he wasn't rewarded right away. A lot of times we can get discouraged if we're trying, we're seeking and we're hoping to do a good work and we just kind of like, sometimes we don't see what we want to see yet. When the Bible says, it says in Galatians 6, 9, and let us not grow weary while doing good for in due season we shall reap if we do not lose heart. You guys keep, Seeking the Lord. Keep doing the best that you can and searching after him with all of your heart, right? And Warren Wiersbe said, our good works are like seeds that are planted by faith and their fruits don't always appear immediately. Evil pursues sinners, but to the righteous, the Bible says, good shall be repaid. You know, when Jesus comes, it's gonna be so cool. We'll receive our reward 
He said in Revelation 22, verse 12, And behold, I'm coming quickly, and my reward is with me to give to everyone according to his work. And so in looking at this and the craziness of it, I think it's important for us to know that God is not the author of sin, but he allows it, and somehow he works it all out for good. You know, this is the sovereignty of God. He reigns even when it rains. It doesn't rain on his providential parade. C.H. Spurgeon said, there is no attribute of God more comforting to his children than the doctrine of divine sovereignty. While we confess that many things involved in this doctrine are shrouded in mystery, it's unthinkable that Almighty God should not be master of his own universe, even in the affairs of pagan empires. God is in control. And so, you know, looking at Esther, um, if God can use her, if God can use Mordecai, you know, can God use you? I pray you would know that. Some of you are like, oh, I don't know. God, God can use you, right? But, but remember, that's not our focus. You know, if, I just, if my focus is only on me and how God can use me, then I might not really be used the way that I kind of want him to. You know what I'm going to do, and I want to encourage you guys to do in light of chapter 2 of Esther, is lift up your eyes. Lift up your eyes and see God high, holy, seated, seated on his throne, filling the world with grace. Yeah, Manny, you blew it. I saw you today. I saw what happened. I saw this and that and all those things and, and all, all that. And it makes you want to go and, and hide and crawl under a rock. But God says, come here. And he peels me up off the floor and he dusts me off and he just says, listen, you know, you just follow me. You just stay focused on me. You just, man, love me. Love my people. Love Israel. And you watch what God will do in your life. You know, some of you here, maybe you've never really accepted the Lord or maybe you're here and you've kind of drifted. Man, I just want you guys to know that most important thing is for you to make a decision tonight to be in right relationship with him. Whatever the sin is, let it go. Whatever the sin is, trust him to give you the power over it. Whatever the situation is, I want you to know that it doesn't matter if it's all of hell who comes against you. The Bible says this, if God is for me, who can be against me? No weapon formed against us shall prosper.